gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Expert to Authority show. And today we have a special guest, and we are going to talk about asking smarter questions. Uh, so for too long, the simple act of asking questions has been overlooked as too trivial to contemplate. And asking smarter questions, which is the new book from master data storyteller Sam Knowles, uh, champion the art of curiosity. By making every question count, you can make your organization less confrontational, more collaborative, and more productive. And today we are going to talk about uh, the um, we're going to talk about the six universal principles of making smarter questions. And at the end, we will also reveal what is the best question in the world to ask. Sam, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Thank you very much, Simone. I'm doing very well indeed. And thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, it has been a while. We met uh, a, to, to our, it, it, it has been an episode in the making because uh, we <laughs> met the speaking at the Professional Speaking Association um, about six months ago, I think. It was fe it was February. Yeah, it was February. It was it was it was it was when it was getting when it was still really exciting to to to, to re meet in the real world. It's like, oh my God, we are back in the room. <laughs> it was a, that kind of moment. And it was fantastic, speakers, yeah. It's like, we are back on on a live stage. Stop talking to camera. <laughs> <laughs> and you delivered a great presentations about asking smarter questions. And that's what caught my attention. I thought that it would make a great episode. Cool. Uh, before we go into... Uh, what we're going to talk about today and ask you smarter questions. How did mm -hmm. you get interested in that topic? Because uh, I don't think it's one of the of these things when you were a kid and you said, when I grow up, <laughs> I, grow up I want to ask smarter questions. I don't think it's one well, of those situations. Well, it's very interesting you should say that. I mean, no, it's it, no, it, no, it, that would not be the case. Although there's there, there's an anecdote in the book um, where I talk about one of my brothers who was a who was an academic in the UK and the US, um, and whenever he used to visit when I was growing up as a kid, he used to come by and see, uh, and, uh, and see and see my parents. Whenever he used to visit. Well, one, he, he was a scientist, so he was really good for he was really good for helping with biology and chemistry homework in particular. But two, he would always after after dinner, after lunch, or, or over the weekend, he'd, he'd always ask us a really interesting question. And there's an anecdote in the book all about um, the the best question I think he ever asked, which is how many pairs of scissors are there in the world? Um, and of course, you know, I'm, I'm relatively, I'm relatively, uh, I've been around knocking around for a long time. This was before the internet. Um, and the question, the, the point of that question was not to get an accurate answer. The point of the question was a kind of thought experiment to develop um, uh, kind of skills and strategies in critical thinking. How I got into the area of asking smarter questions is this. Um, I, uh, in kind of day-to-day -day consultancy and training and coaching and mentoring, I help uh, individuals, uh, teams and companies make better use of data at a philosophical but also at a deeply practical level. Right. So if you're going to make better use of data, I think there are three things that you need to do. And the first of those, I mean, I happen to write, I've written three books in this area. I happen to write them in the wrong order, but that doesn't matter. History won't remember that. Um, you know, I'm just, I'm just revealing that to, 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 to you, Simone, and to the, and to the listeners, but people won't remember that. Um, but there are three things that you need to do. The first thing you need to do is to ask a really, uh, is to ask 
the right questions to surface the right data. You might say that sounds uh, a trivial thing, but I think it's it's one of these things that isn't trivial and has been overlooked for too long, as you said in the introduction. The second thing, once you have the right data, is that you can you can then use that data to uh, to really understand the market, the customers, the competitors, the colleagues. If you have the right data, you can get profound and useful understanding of those that you're looking to influence. That profound and useful understanding, another way of expressing that is insight. Uh, that was the second book. Um, and then if you, once you have insight, genuine insight into the lives of those that you're looking to influence, well, then you can tell more powerful, more purposeful, data-driven stories. So I'm fascinated by the way that companies um, uh, and organizations are overwhelmed by data. And it's my mission to help them get through that overwhelm uh, and to use data smarter. And in this way, you can use, that's what, what I remember actually about the workshop that uh, that you did when uh, when, when we, were, we met at the PSA, uh, of helping us retelling our own story through some pieces of data about our business. And that sometimes is often overlooked because uh, it's yeah. almost like data and stories, they happen on two different levels, on two different planes. Can you talk about why that happens and why normally organizations or businesses don't integrate data and stories and they almost happen to live separately? I, I, think, it's, I think it's really interesting. Uh, and I think it, it happens for a couple of reasons. One is that, is that in most uh, countries around the world, um, the further and further you go through education, the more specialized you become either in let's characterize it as the storytelling graph in the arts um, or in the, uh, the, the, the craft of using data, and that is sciences and mathematics. Um, I think that in the modern knowledge economy, actually those people that thrive and survive are those who are able to bridge that gap. But I think there's a problem with education that makes us specialize in one way or another, first at school, then through university, and then in the world of work. Whereas in fact, Every job, I think, you know, think about in human resources, think about and people management, think about in analytics and insight, think about in marketing communications. Every role um, in every organization really these days uh, requires people to make use of data and to take that data um, and to, be, to, to, to have it as the foundation of their storytelling. But because we've been trained at school and, and, and beyond uh, and in the world of work, because we've been trained to be one thing or another, it's very hard to bring those two things together. They, the world of stories and statistics, of narrative and numbers, are traditionally poles apart. As I say, I'm on a mission to bring those two back together because I think if you join them together, you get something very, very much more powerful. I think the other reason uh, that um, there has been a divide is that there's a problem in psychology or a misunderstanding um, uh, in psychology that we are either so-called left-brained or right-brained, right? -brained, right? Uh, if you're left-brained, uh, you are analytical, and if you're right-brained, you're creative. Well, in fact, you know, the fact that hopefully, you know, you and the listeners are, uh, and the viewers are, are understanding uh, this, this uh, discussion, uh, the fact that there may well be an end to this sentence that I'm speaking now, uh, the fact that, um, uh, that, that we are, uh, we're, we're building this dialogue between one another depends on about 150 discrete um, 
uh, units or subroutines or, or locations in both the left and the right side of the brain mm. um, that are interacting together. You know, I generate words with a bit of the brain here and I string them together into sense here. You decode them into sense here and then you understand the individual elements over here. But they're, they're, they're working in, in, in tandem. But I think, I, think po I think popular psychology and particular popular media misrepresentation of how the mm. brain and therefore how the mind works says we are either left-brained or right-brained. We're so either artists or scientists. Left-brained or right-brained. There is, a, there is a, instead of looking actually both parts of the brain, they, they both work for you. <laughs> <laughs> they they certainly do and 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 they, and they work in partnership they work in partnership and yeah. it and and, it, and it's just too simplistic but you know as as creatures we like a simple explanation you know we we you know we, you know we like to say you know this war was caused by oil or this election was won because of for for, for this reason but in fact that you know lots of things interact with one another and our brains um our brains try mislead us to try and find simple single factor yeah. solutions whereas in fact they're much more complex than that and we as 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 creatures um as top down and bottom up processing creatures we use the whole of our brain rather than just one side or the other so i think those are two reasons why school and psychology and that that goes for me now the other question before we go into as we are talking about question i've got another question sure Good, good, good. Of course, yeah. Which is uh, why bother? I, why should company bother and organizations and businesses to actually go the extra mile to find the data, convert the data into stories? And of course, that's where you come in. But what are the real benefits for a company? Because uh, in, I, I, yeah, things have great, been, great have question. been working. Like I've been working also without it. And so what's the benefit? Why should I bother doing that? Impact is the is is the simple answer. Uh, if you do join these two things together, you are very much more likely to be very much more impactful. So uh, you know the the world is a complex, well, it's a volatile, uncertain, um, complex, ambiguous place these days. Um, uh, it, it, it's it's never been more so. Um, margins are tighter and tighter than they than they have ever been. Uh, the differentiation between companies that that do whatever they do is getting closer and closer and i think that this is one of the uh, largely untouched areas that's that's going to allow companies to really differentiate themselves and to, and have and and have greater impact if you can join these two things together you can communicate with more impact and and your potential customers your current customers will know whether or not they should engage with you so it's all down to impact if you if you if you pigeonhole either if you and keep apart the data and storytelling you know data and storytelling is great because what it does is it balances if you're if you become a, a compelling data storyteller you balance the emotional and the rational and we make our decisions emotionally and we justify them rationally we need both bits in there yeah. we need you know the left brain and the right brain we need the ancient reptilian brain in order to make those decisions so it's all about impact um i really like it uh thank you for the answer because uh, that's what's the missing piece. So we, we know that data are powerful and this is what gets people to pay attention and actually to give validity to something that can be a theory or a claim. In this case, can mm -hmm. be a marketing claim or it can be mm -hmm. a claim that you're making to put a new policy in your work environment, whatever mm -hmm. it's going to be, whatever that claim mm -hmm. is. But also we need the story because we make sense of the world through stories. And so now we have we the emotional part and the logical part together. Exactly.
Exactly. No, you you are completely right. We know uh, from the uh, from our earliest age onwards, we make sense of the world through stories, um, and there are some very simple um, and quite um, uh, universal uh, elements to story structure. You know, we like a three part. We like a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, we like there to be turning points in stories. Mm. Um, and if stories are missing those elements, then we find them unsatisfying and we look somewhere else. So we need both to obey the rules of great storytelling that were set out by the ancient Greeks two and a half thousand years ago and more, um, uh, and have endured ever since, particularly in, in, in the Western tradition, but actually globally. And um, so there, there are the elements of storytelling. But then if you overlay those with the proof that you can get, the validation you can get from nimble and agile use of just a few numbers, not drowning people in numbers. Drowning people in numbers is completely counterproductive. They turn off. But if you can, if you can fuse those two together, the emotional and the rational will be balanced uh, and you will have more impact. That's a, it's a small promise, but you know, uh, I, I, I see it happen time and time again with companies that I work with when they really get a handle on how to bring those two things together. Yeah, we, can, we can understand why we have the emotional logic working together. Uh, so now, just for everyone who's been listening or watching, now, we have digressed a bit. The reason why I wanted to digress and took a step back is to look at the bigger picture because, of course, we are still talking about questions and we are now going mm -hmm. to into the topic of questions. But now I want to put things into context of why do we even ask those questions in the first, in the first place? Because the right questions are helping you collect the right data so that you can turn the data into story and you can make a bigger impact. But the yep. starting point, that's where it all starts, is with the right questions. And uh, when we were preparing, when I was preparing for this interview, you mentioned that there are six universal principles of asking smarter questions. And that piqued yeah. my curiosity. I want to know what these <laughs> universal principles now are. Now. So, so, so uh, they're, they're, they're grandly and loftily, loftily called universal principles, probably with a capital U and a capital P. Um, uh, I was really interested when, when I worked out that I wanted to um, look into this, this much overlooked, um, and as you said in the introduction, kind of almost too trivial to contemplate. If you think about, let's go back to school again, school and the workplace. What are we rewarded for? We're rewarded for answers, right? Um, we're rewarded for, for, for you know, in, in school exams, in uh, our bosses come to us and they say, you know, why are the, why, why is the Swedish team outperforming the, the, uh, the Scottish team? What, you know, what's happening here? We need to understand. So we're rewarded for uh, using analytical thinking to come up with uh, answers to questions. Uh, it's answers in exams rather than questions uh, that, that, that get the marks. But actually, if we don't step back and think about uh, the type of uh, questions that we ask and the way that it's not, it, it, as the old song says, has it, it ain't what you do, it's the way, it's the way that you do it. Well, it's, it's both what you do, it's what you ask and how you ask it. If you don't um, put some thought and some effort into un, into understanding how to how to ask genuinely smart questions, not leading questions, not closed questions, not biased questions, not questions that are going to have an inevitable answer. If you don't do that, then you will not make progress. So one of the things that I did in the research for this book, as well as as well as reading what other people have said about this, as well as going back. Um, I mean, I was originally a classicist, so I always go back to the ancient Greeks, and we might come. We, I, I, I will indeed. I'll, I'll, I'll come back. I'll definitely come back to that. Um, uh, particularly Socrates, the the, the Greek philosopher. Um, but if one of the things I did was to speak to people, a wide variety of people at the top of their game, 
for whom asking really smart questions um, uh, is an absolute uh, differentiator. So I spoke to um, Nobel Prize winning biochemist. Uh, I spoke to uh, Queen's now King's Council, um, a barrister. Uh, I spoke to journalists. I spoke to um, a Zen Buddhist sensei. You know, Zen Buddhists, uh, uh, they spend a whole a lot of time in their um, meditation practice yeah. asking unanswerable questions, so-called koans. You know, what is the sound of one hand clapping or can you fit a, or how would you fit a how would you fit a, a pagoda into a teapot? Those kind of impossible questions. And the point of those questions is not to get answers, but it's actually to get you to think about the very act of asking questions. I spoke to police. I spoke to an FBI hostage negotiator. All sorts of people, if they don't ask questions in the right way, market researchers, all sorts of people, if they don't ask questions in the right way, then they're not going to do their jobs properly. But I think it's broader than that. And I think that actually all of us, um, whatever we do, uh, really can benefit from what I call the universal principles that come partly from my reading and from my understanding and the rest of it, but also from the direct practice of these people. So let's dive into these principles, shall we? I mean, the first one, uh, the first one is curiosity. Um, now, the psychoanalyst Melanie Klein, uh, she said that she said that um, uh, she was a, a student of Freud. She said that that humans have what she called um, she called it the epistemophilic instinct. Let's translate that. Let's make it English. Um, uh, they have a thirst for knowledge. Um, children, you know, by the age of five, children have asked wherever they are in the world um, about forty thousand questions that start with the word "why." Anyone who's either any, ever brought up children or who or who've ever spent any time with young children will, will know that children say "why, why, 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 why," why and what they why, want. To... <laughs> why, 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 why? But what they want to do, what they want to do, is to work out how the world works. Right? They want to know if I pull my cat's tail, will it bite me or will it purr? If I put my sister's fingers in the in the in the socket, will it go bang? And I go to what? They, they want to learn what's going to happen in the world. And yet, as soon as they get to school and then into the world of uh, of education and work, they're validated by giving answers rather than asking questions. Uh, and I think it's really important. You know, th this curiosity is is a is a, is a is a universal human instinct wanting to understand the world. Uh, and too many institutions squash us, try to squash it out of us. Not not saying we want you not to be curious, but you know, mm -hmm. if a child asks questions in class rather than gives answers that you know they might be oh you you've, you you know you 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 have uh, you have poor attention span or you're not you're not playing now i understand from the teacher's perspective that they need to get through a curriculum i understand that but actually curiosity and the curiosity to know how the world works um is really i think the fundamental starting point for asking uh, really 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 smart questions the next one is about open-mindedness so i think it's really vital that we're open-minded. This is where I go back to, to, to the old irritating Socrates in 5th century Athens. Now, he had, there was a paradox that Socrates had. Socrates wanted to find out, you know, what was truth, what was beauty, what made the world tick. And his starting point was to say, and he said it many times, according to um, uh, Plato, who, who, well, Socrates wrote nothing that yeah. survives, and it's all written by Plato. So he said many times, all that I know is that I know nothing. So starting from a position of ignorance, it's not false ignorance. So, you know, if let's say you're a market researcher and you've been working for 20 years in the holiday industry um, and you know how to ask questions of um, people about whether they're going to what type of holiday they're going to take. And you take a brief from a new client. Um, you could you could say, yeah, I know. I know how to do this. I know the market. I know the I know the type of answers people give. 
I know the kind of questions I'm going to ask. If you start from a position that says, I am ignorant, you know, I've got experience, but I'm ignorant of this particular set of questions I'm going to be asking. Or if you're a psychotherapist and you're faced with a new client, oh, it's obvious that they were abused by their uh, by their friends and parents, and they were abandoned as a child. It's obvious, or you know, they've got they've got they've got parent they've got issues. If you don't bring those assumptions, biases, and prejudices to the questions that you ask, and instead you take an approach that says, "I don't know the specifics of this case, so let's just start from that position of open mindedness," then then I think you're much more likely to ask genuinely, genuinely smart questions. Yeah, I I'm, I'm agree 100% with you. Uh, that's a big part also of our approach because the work that we do is to create and launch and sell online courses. And uh, when we work with a client and they come to us and say, okay, how many, how many sales are we going to make straight away? My answer is, I don't know. Because <laughs> I can look at patterns and I can say, okay, based on your audience and based on my experience and based on the conversion rate, we can yep. make X amount of sales. But the reason why the first time that we sell, we always do a pre-launch campaign is to actually validate how many sales we could actually make with the material, with the offer that we have created, with the material that we have done, the conversion of the landing page and all the other parts. Because mm-hmm. I shoot myself in the foot at the beginning after I thought I knew everything and I say, okay, I've done about like 50 of these launches. Now I know, understand the metrics. There is always, every business is different. There is always something that needs to be tweaked. And sometimes you get positively surprised and sometimes you're like, hmm, I'm a bit disappointed right now. What do I need to change? So curiosity and open-mindedness, even in the launch space is uh, the biggest, uh, is the biggest piece of advice I can give also to clients that they are launching something because yeah you can't really base anything to what you've done in the past every launch is a new is a different is a, is a different part that does that doesn't that doesn't downplay for one second your experience and knowledge about how to build these things but 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 if you can park your prejudices your assumptions your biases at the door i mean i think this is particularly important in the issues uh, you know in, in the area of uh, of gender equality, of of, uh, of race equality, of I mean, uh, able-bodiedness, all of these areas. Yeah. If you think about, it's not just market researchers at all. I'm not either picking on them or saying they're particularly good. But 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 if you if you um, write questions from the perspective of a middle-class white Western man, you're going to get answers in one area. If you think about the market that you're actually going after. Mm-hmm. Um, and you park those assumptions and prejudices at the door, you're more likely to ask uh, re- really bright questions. Which brings us to the third, and we'll, go, we'll, 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 we'll fly through. The third is about preparation. Um, and I'm sure, I have no doubt you'll agree with this, but, but you know, actually thinking about the questions that you're going to ask, not anticipating or second-guessing what, what the other person is going to answer, mm-hmm. but if you prepare uh, um, uh, you know, uh, both pol- uh, police and, and and, and lawyers in particular, but also journalists and doctors, you know, doctors too. They, it's not about mapping out a, a conversation journey for, I'll ask this question, then this, then this, then this, but just imagining how it's going to be. You know, it's like, it's like the preparation of, uh, of great sport, of great sports, uh, of great sports people, you know, it's about, it's about visualization of how the conversation may go, but preparing and being prepared for it may go over here, it may go over here. If it goes over here, I need to do this. If it goes over here, I need to do that. 
but preparing individual questions, preparing the structure, also preparing the environment. I talk about the how as well as the what. Preparing the environment. It's really important that people don't feel intimidated, that they feel um, they don't feel that there's anything in the either the online or the or the physical environment which is going to intimidate uh, the other person. So making sure that you think how it's going to go. It's, I, as I say, that's quite a good analogy. The the visualization that that, that sports coaches will get people uh, to have. The, the the next one we've talked about open mindedness and this Socratic paradox of saying you know nothing. The next one, and this is something that that so many people in so many different areas say. Um, open questions. So not not um, uh, what were you doing at nine forty five um, uh, uh, or in the dog and duck pub with that with that snooker cue in your hand, uh, you know, or you know what That's did you intend leading. to do? <laughs> it's quite leading, right? But 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 um, one of the things. I, so I I spoke to a I spoke to a number of people involved in the police, both those uh, at a very senior strategic level, but also those. Uh, the operational level and one of the things that the uk police it's not unique to the uk but this but a couple of a couple of these detective sergeants were from uk police was that they have what they call their ted formula and the ted formula is is it's an acronym for three uh questions that they ask which is tell explain describe um or or those are the beginnings so 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 tell me simone what, what was how were you feeling on on last thursday can you explain where you were? Could you describe in a little bit more detail? You don't answer all of those questions together in a cluster. Yeah, yeah. We'll come on in the next principle. Cluster questions are an absolute no-no because people get confused. But this tell, explain, describe, um, they're open questions. And people want to tell stories. You know, even, people, even criminals that have commit, committed heinous crimes that are going to see them behind bars for years, once they've been caught, they want to talk, even if they feel embarrassed, um, about what they may have done or they have been called. They want to explain it and you just need to give them the space. But open questions, not closed. So allowing people the possibility. I'm not just talking about criminals here. I'm talking about, I'm talking about, you know, in coaching, in developing, uh, in developing products and services, using open questions rather than closing people down too soon. There's a case for closed questions. Once yeah, that's, what, that's exactly what I wanted to ask you. You, you really like I was uh, I was ready to ask. Is that, so where, where is the is the place for closed questions? Where shall we use them? I think so. So when you're, you know, you know we, 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 we can be as broad as we like until we need to narrow down. So I think I think the, the case for closed questions is quite interesting. Both lawyers and uh, doctors uh, told me uh, and, and I've observed, you know, having worked uh, alongside both. They said, you know, you need to give people um, enough space to be able to explain the situation and then you know, so so you know, how how are you feeling today, Mr. Vicenzi? You know, what, um, since 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 we saw you last, um, you know, or, a, a, you know, a, a, any any general pain here there, and then you say, yeah, do you know what? I felt something in my knee. Oh, can you tell me what you felt knee? Oh, was it a is it a violent stabbing pain that happens at three in the morning? Okay, then you've got condition X. So you give people the scope to be. I'm giving a, a, a kind of trivial caricature of example, but you can see from that example, you give people the the, the breadth and, and the latitude to be able to explain to you what it is, and then you can bring your knowledge and understanding to 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 to, to, to get that understanding. Um, I, the closed question too early will make people close down and not open up to you. The open question encourages them to do that. 
So is the the rule of thumb we can say if there is any rules, uh, hmm. but one of, one of we can say that we start with open questions and then we can go we use closed question to narrow down once yeah. we have an understanding of and one that person also has opened up enough where we yeah. could have their information. So maybe like the closest question they are merely to validate an assumption that we have that we got based on the open questions. Exactly. Exactly. So brilliantly put. Much, but much better than I put it. Um, the next, so, so, so the next one is uh, the last one is is uh, is about simplicity. So there's there, there's a line from Mark Twain, Winston Churchill, Oscar Wilde. That they are all said to have said, "I would have written you a shorter letter. I just didn't have the time." Um, mm -hmm. And I think for 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 for, for questions, it's it's related to the to this third principle of preparation. But for questions. If you prepare those questions and you make sure that your questions are simple, by simple, I don't mean simplistic or simple minded, um, but if they're straightforward questions, if they're easy to understand, if they're clear and transparent and well prepared, then uh, the answer, the, then you're, the person that you're asking the question of will know what, will know what you mean and they'll be more likely to, uh, to answer. It may take you longer to prepare and to craft, yes. um, you know, j just like this, writing you a shorter letter, it may take you longer to, to create a simple question. But actually, the savings in time you will have by asking a simple question uh, versus a complex question, you won't have to answer them again. You won't have to ask them again. And the more you ask people, the, if you ask people the same thing again and again and again in different ways, they feel that either they've got it wrong or you haven't understood them and it either makes them close down or it makes them give answers that they think you want rather than actually the, the answers that uh, are truthful answers. Um, uh, and I think that um, the worst the worst type of question and judges in court, my lawyer friends tell me, are good at ruling these out. But the worst type of questions are cluster questions. Now, what were you doing on Thursday night? But hang on, but you say, but you know, before you answer that question, can you just remember what your mother said to you on Friday? And before, and so you just give cluster, cluster, cluster questions. People don't know which one to answer. I mean, it's 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 if you think of um, politicians being interviewed by the media, um, often the media will ask a cluster question, and the politician will choose the easiest question to answer. Um, uh, uh, so, the media, so try... they, have, they might have like twenty seconds. <laughs> yeah. to ask that question so they try to crumb as many as many information as many things as possible which... it was it was i mean it was really in evidence during the pandemic you may remember the height uh, of the pandemic the yeah. the five o'clock press conference um you know we now laura kunzberg <laughs> from the bbc can you what's your question and and then she'd ask five questions you know yes. what's happened about PPE and and well, what about the par parties and all all and so well just the easiest question would be would, would be answered so be simple and then finally the last one isn't about isn't about asking at all it's about listening it's about silence it's about genuinely giving people the space to uh, answer questions um, there's a really good um, TED salon talk by a woman called Julia Dar. And she talks about she talks about her dad, who uh, just at the time that um, Donald Trump was was elected president, he was a Democrat, and he went round Trump supporting states, and 
he asked questions that the, the, his question, and this is, I think, one of the um, one of the smartest questions in the world. I know you're going to ask me those, but he said what, what he said was, "I never really thought about it that way before. What can you share with me that would help me see what you see?" And I think that's a really interesting question. And then he'd be quiet mm. and he'd allow the answer to come. Um, and what Julia says, what Julia Dar says, is that. Uh, to be honest, um, if you ask repetitive questions, cluster questions, confrontational questions, um, then what's going to happen is you're it's it's like you're in a you're in a in a fighting cage, and actually yeah. questions shouldn't be like a fighting cage. This is not about uh, confrontation. This is much more about. She says much better to ask questions like a climbing wall. There's a little opportunity here. You climb up a little more, a little more opportunity here. So listening. Um, and uh, and allowing people to talk and allowing silence. I mean, this is another thing that police and lawyers use a lot and also doctors. If you allow silence, most of us don't like silence. Um, most of us will fill that silence with answers that we may or may not uh, have realised um, that we are revealing the truth. So it's a double-edged thing. One, you're not competing and you're allowing people to answer. But two, by creating silence, most people fill that silence. And then they're going to give you the information that because silence can be uncomfortable. Um, it was a piece of advice that was given also one of my early sales trainers um, where say when you're giving the proposal and you're sharing, sometimes you're mentioning the price, uh, there can be a moment where you're now starting to talk while you wait for the client to give the answers. And I made those mistakes many times at the beginning. I was like, oh, how much it is? Uh, I say it's 10,000 pounds. And then I will start like saying, oh, it is 10,000 pounds because we are doing this and this while say it's 10,000 pounds. And you will find that now at that point, <laughs> the clients will say something. Yep. We'll say, we'll say something. And that will be the starting point of the negotiation or the conversation or what, what's going to be next. Uh, so I, I just, I wanted to recap now these points because, uh, uh, yep. Then we can put them all together in one piece. So we have curiosity. So being curious, open-mindedness. So not making assumption, preparation, preparation, not only of the questions, but also the environment to make sure that the other person feels safe to answer the questions, Perfect. open questions so that we can get uh, the information from the clients and then maybe using closing questions toward the end to validate maybe an assumption that we have. Yep. Simplicity, one question at a time, not multiple questions, and then listening, giving the space for the other person to really answer and not be afraid of the silence. And that's our, the six pillars, the six universal principle of asking smarter questions. And one thing that, that I would love to... Yeah, that's my view. Yeah, one thing, one thing that I, I, I would love to say is that uh, when you are selling, I bring back everything to sales and marketing based, this, based this what I do. These are great ways. To, when you're selling, you're asking questions to people. You're asking questions about them, their business or their life, depending on what you're selling. So those principles, they can be applied to any situations where you're asking questions, not only when you're doing market research, when you're doing sales, when you're doing marketing, when you're coaching your clients, when you're working with your clients. So that's what I like is the versatility of those principles. That's what I wanted to mention. Very good. Uh, now, there is a, before we wrap up, 
there is uh, the best questions in the world to ask. Is that what you said before, or do we have another one? Well, so I mean, I think that is a very, I think it's a very good one. Um, I mean, I, I in in the in the book, I mention uh, fifteen of of what I, th- I think are the best. Um, I, I mean, I think it's quite interesting to think about what are the worst. I mean, some, some it, it was one of the worst questions. I think uh, whether it's at a networking event, whether it's at a first meeting with a with prospective client, um, uh, but one of the, I think the worst questions is what do you do. Now, you know, senior members of the royal family are uh, allowed to do that because that's what they ask. Uh, um, uh, the, you know, the, but but actually, what do you do? Almost always makes people feel resentful uh, and feel the need to describe their job. Um, whereas, if you say what lights you up, or how do you spend your time, or what's it like being you, you are getting them to think about themselves in the round. And so, you know, what lights you up might be coaching my son's soccer team uh, on a Sunday morning when it's uh, when it's blowing a hurricane. And but 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 that but you know what might, what lights you up might be closing a sale. What lights you up might be winning a court case. What lights you up might be um, when I finally work out what's wrong with my patient who's been coming to see me. So it, 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 it allows you not to say, not to say, are you defined by what you do as a job, but it's what makes you uh, really uh, excited. How do you spend your time is another one. Um, uh, I think um, how do you spend your time is uh, Darren Brown, you know, the, 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 the mesmerist Darren Brown. Um, I think that's his favorite question rather than, uh, what do you do? What do you do really narrow, really, really narrows us down? I think in, t- I think in terms of, um, uh, in terms of allowing ourselves um, time to grow and to reflect, I think there are a couple of questions that are really smart. One of these is what can I control? So, um, you know, one of the great definitions of stress is trying to control the things that you can't control. We've all been in the situation yes. where we've been fretting and fretting and fretting. So if you think, what, what can I control? And uh, what you can control is your reaction to events. You can't control events. If you think back to the height of the pandemic, um, you know, wanting COVID numbers to go down so that we could go to the pub again or whatever it might have been so we could go and see our friends and family again. You can't control that, but you can control your reaction to that. I mean, that's one of the principles of, of ancient Greek and Roman Stoic philosophy. You know, all that you can control um, is your reaction to events. If you can't control events, we, you know, one individual, even if you're the prime minister or the world president, you can't control everything can't control because everything. the world is... The, and, and then the, the other, so that what, what, just realising what you can control and asking yourself. The other one, I, I think, is to, is to have a gratitude practice um, and just ask yourself at the end of every day, what three things am I grateful for today? You might write it down. You might say it out loud. You might say it to your partner or to your family or to your colleagues. But just asking uh, what you're grateful for, and then on a and then on a on a business front, if you want to make it more business oriented, I think that the net promoter score question is one of the smartest questions in the world. You know, on a scale of zero to ten, um, how likely is it that you'd recommend us to uh, to a friend uh, or a colleague? And you just you know you calculate who are the nines and tens, and then who are the rest. Uh, and you subtract one from the other. I think that's a real smart question. So there's a variety. I mean, I think uh, one of the one of the most underestimated smart questions is what is called the Colombo question. Now, there was in the 70s, uh, Lieutenant Frank Colombo, um, who was a sort of bumbling detective, American detective, 
Um, and he would always solve the case, but the way he would always solve the case, mm. um, when, you know, when the villain, you know, he thought the villain, she, he or she thought they got off the hook, he'd just say, kind of just one more thing. Um, and thing. that's how he'd start his, his, his final question. Um, and for me, the Columbo question is really, is there anything else that I haven't asked you that maybe I should have asked you. And I think that's a real, that's, that's the way that many doctors will find out the real reason why one of their patients has come to see them. You know, mm. just when they're putting their coat on, got the hand on the door, leaving the doctor's surgery, anything else? Do you know what, actually, and then I, I, that, that yeah. is often the moment when it, and that, but that can, happen, that can happen in a sales conversation as well, right? You know, so you've talked through what the challenges are, what they're facing. Is there anything else? Is there anything else that we can help you with? Is, is there anything else that's bothering you right now? And then suddenly, blah, it all comes blah. out. I used to have a sales trainer um, that uh, used to teach us the Colombo clothes. And uh, when uh, there is someone and that to be used in situations where you are there and there is a good rapport with that client, with that potential client, but somehow the deal is not moving forward and say, okay, I can see that we might not have a deal now. So maybe this is not working, but let, let me just ask you one more question. One more question. And then <laughs> say, if there was one thing that we could do together to, to work, to just get started the process, what would it be? The amount of sales that that question gave me, you have no idea. Brilliant. I can I can say a prob a good uh, two hundred thousand worth of sales. Uh, they have been closed by me asking that question. Perfect. That has been uh, uh, so Colombo. We like the Colombo sale, the Colombo close, uh, or in this case, the Colombo questions. Now this has been a masterclass on asking on asking question, and definitely in the book uh, there is uh, much more to it, much more depth, much more details, more examples of questions. So before we wrap up, tell us how we can find the book, what people can expect also in the book as well, and uh, what is that you are covering there. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I mean, so uh, of course, anybody that might who have writes been a, book like about... a cluster question, actually. Yeah, well, two questions in one. Now, now I'm now I'm even now I'm aware of it. <laughs> <laughs> so where you can find it is asksmartercues.com. Qs.com, asksmartercues.com. Um, uh, there's a, as I said, there is a lot in there. There are fifteen, sixteen interviews with, with with the type of experts that I've been talking about. Um, of course, anyone who writes a book about questions, and there are several books about questions, uh, but anyone who writes a book about questions, every chapter has to be a question. Um, there are some there are some fantastic jokes in the footnotes, let me tell you. Um, uh, there are, uh, there, there, there's a, I mean, I think that I think that you know I've I've written three business books: one on data storytelling, one on insightful thinking, and this one on um, uh, on asking smarter questions. Um, as I say, I wrote them in the wrong order, but but no, you won't tell anyone that. You won't tell anyone now, that. Now the trilogy. Um, now the trilogy is completed. <laughs> the trilogy is complete. The trilogy is complete. Um, but I think I, I think it is the most fundamental and the most broadly applicable. Because if you do follow those principles that you know we've gone through about curiosity and open-mindedness and so on and so forth, this can help you be a better partner. It can help you be a better parent or child. It can help you be a better neighbor. It can help you be uh, a better colleague in whatever um, uh, line of work you work in. And, and, and you, said at the, you said at the beginning, you know, you talked about making every question count, making your organization, making your life um, less confrontational, more collaborative, more productive. I think we all have more fun when we get on. And I'm not trying to be kind of tree hugging and happy clappy and, and say, but it's much more fun when 
there's less confrontation and there's more collaboration because the potential of one plus one is very much more than two. Uh, and the potential of, you know, seven, eight billion plus, plus, plus the rest of us is very much more. So I think that, uh, I mean, I think you'll get a real sense of optimism. I say there are some good jokes. They're not all mine, but there are some good jokes, particularly in the footnotes. Um, but there's a, there, there, it's kind of an attitude uh, of, uh, of life that, that, that if you do put a little bit more effort into the questions that you ask and specifically pausing to listen to let the other person answer, then you're going to be very much more likely to have um, uh, more fun and a better time. So that's asking smarter questions that we can find it at asksmarterqs.com. So it's asksmarterqs.com and you will also find the link in the show notes. So you can scroll down, you can click the link and find the resources and definitely get the book. Uh, Sam, it has been a, an incredible interview. I loved what you shared, the, the six principles, uh, the best questions also in the world to ask. And uh, thank you for being uh, here on the show and uh, helping me as well ask smarter questions. <laughs> Thank you so much for the time. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been an enormous pleasure. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you haven't subscribed, make sure you subscribe to the channel and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, also leave us a review. They're really important. They're the lifeblood of the show. And last but not least, until next time, always remember that together we grow exponentially. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Explode Your Expert Business Show. If you enjoyed the interview, please subscribe to the show and leave us a review. Every week we will select a winner from the reviews that we get. So it might be you. Make sure you give us a review. It means the world to us and that's how we, you can help us grow the show. Also remember to download the Expert Business Checklist to get the roadmap on how to become an authority in your field. The link is in the show notes or you can visit gtex.events forward slash expert iPhone checklist. So it's gtex.events forward slash expert iPhone checklist. And as well, finally, if you want to receive daily support in your coaching and speaking business or explore how we can work together, join our private Facebook group, Explode Your Expert Biz. Again, you can find it on Facebook at Explode Your Expert Biz or the link is in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, remember that together we grow exponentially. <laughs>